I think there's a shift to understanding sport as a vehicle for health, for education, to awareness, um, but also knowing what it means around reconciliation. The shift around you know, real respect, real acknowledgement, and real understanding there has to be a pathway. Regardless of where you live in this country, if you want to be a great sports person, then let's make sure you have the opportunity. It shouldn't matter if you're a rural or remote communities, shouldn't be matter if you're black, white or brindle. Whatever background you, you should be able to give them the same opportunities as everyone else. If the sporting organisation is using your image and using you to promote their brand, they also need to be responsible for helping keep you safe. Like, I can throw and catch a netball and that's great, but the, how's that going to help me in the real world? And it's really nice um, to, to be working this education role and understand that the things that I learnt during sport is now so relevant in helping me, helping others. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Onside, the official podcast for Sport Integrity Australia. I'm Tim Gable. In this podcast, we speak to athletes, coaches and administrators and examine the issues that affect sport answer your questions and educate you about clean and fair sport. Well, it's been a busy start to the year with the launch of Sport Integrity Australia's new Safety in Sport division. It includes a new hotline capability to provide a place for anyone in sport past or present to be heard and seek support. The Safe Sport hotline is part of an expanded service offered to members of sport to share their story about integrity issues they've experienced. Service includes an anonymous reporting capability which covers wider racial and cultural issues in sport for people who feel as though they've been discriminated against in their sport. Call 1800 161 361 7am to 7pm, seven days a week to share your story. Former Olympic sprinter Patrick Johnson has also joined the agency as a safety and cultural advisor to ensure our responses are appropriate and informed. Patrick will provide strategic leadership to our agency and sport in Australia in the areas of diversity and inclusion, with the aim of developing an agency that's culturally capable, respectful and engaging, while helping us guide education for delivery to all levels of sport in Australia. We'll talk to Patrick shortly. We'll also be joined by former Australian Diamond captain and world champion Caitlin Bassett, who's recently taken up a role at Sport Integrity Australia as an athlete educator. Firstly to Patrick Johnson. Patrick is a Kanju man from far north Queensland who's best known for being the first man of non-African descent to smash the 10-second barrier for the 100 metres. A dual Olympian, Patrick has an extensive career off the track that includes 10 years in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, more than 20 years of advocacy work for equal rights for all Australians, in addition to numerous Indigenous leadership roles. Patrick is the inaugural chair of the AOC's Indigenous Advisory Committee and is on the organising committee for the Olympic Games Board for Brisbane 2032. And he joins us now. Well, Patrick, firstly, welcome to Sport Integrity Australia. I guess culture is a very important part of sport these days. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that's uh, really great to be part of Sport Integrity Australia, particularly around, you know, we talk about cultural aspects and education and awareness. And I think it's something that as a country, 
uh, and in sport that we're really are making a lot of inroads to that space. But everyone's on their different journeys. So it's really important to have that respect. Um, but we have to lead by example. And I think that's where, you know, part of my role here at Sport Integrity Australia is to really ensure that we are leading that space. Sport can be a driver, can't it? In the lead up to the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games, there's a feeling that, that sport can drive cultural change wider than sport and that's why it's so important to embed it into sport. Yeah, and I think there's a shift to understanding sport as a vehicle for health, for education, to awareness, um, but also knowing what it means around reconciliation. And I think that there's a sense of the next nine years until Brisbane 2032 that we want to ensure that all Australians are a part of the Olympic Games and part of sport. Um, and that's probably a bigger picture that we've looked at and bigger change that's happening in Australian sport that we have to call out racism, we have to call out inequality, we have to create you know, real space for safe, culturally safe spaces around diversity and inclusion. And I think that's the shift that's happening in this country. Um, and of course, we've got a long way to go in certain sports and certain realities, but I think if we have good leaders in this space uh, and everyone sort of buys into it and understands why we're doing it, then it's a, a real game change in what we're doing leading into 2032, but it's also 10 years post the Olympic Games, which is really important to really leave a legacy that's really meaningful. Personally, did you experience much racism coming through as a sprinter? Not as much. Um, there was always some racist taunts, but um, I was fairly fortunate where um, my running, I did the talking on the track, um, but also I think in track and field, uh, you had a lot of diversity um, and against I was competing against Americans, Jamaicans and the rest of the world. So it probably wasn't a space for racism, but it still occurs. And I think this is the biggest issue that we've got in sport is to making sure that we have no tolerance for it at every level uh, from grassroots all to high performance. And again, it's dealing with the unconscious bias as well that people may have over the years. So it's actually addressing that, um, which is really important component where People don't even know they're saying certain things that may be racist um, or may be, you know, affecting, you know, the, the, the staff or to athletes or anyone. So we've already got to really be really inward thinking about how we reflect on our conversations and how we think. And that's a shift that um, as part of sport has a great vehicle in doing because sport breaks down all the barriers, religion, race, uh, culture, it brings people together. So how do we make sure sport then influences and educates in the right way? Because discrimination still exists in sport and you know, that is, I guess, where culture comes into it. But with racism, it can lead to discrimination as well. I guess at a, at a grassroots level, that's where you'd be trying to sort of integrate that racism, discrimination has no place in sport. Yeah, it has to be at all levels uh, and that's really important from grassroots, of course. You know, they, they don't know nothing about racism unless they learn it from, you know, where they play or what they do. So it's actually educating everyone involved from parents to coaches to, you know, sporting organisations that there's no tolerance for racism, bullying, harassment and you name it. It's really important that, you know, we understand why it happens. And I think there's that educational piece where you can say no to racism, but what's it really mean? So there's that educational piece of why are people racist or why are people bullying or being harassed? So it's really being clear, you know, understanding the reasons behind it and ensuring that 
we understand we don't have any tolerance for it. So we don't have a place for that in this country and particularly in sport. Do you find it's an uncomfortable conversation to have with some people who probably don't know any different? Yeah, it's always uncomfortable, but I think you have to have an open dialogue. You have to start somewhere. Um, and again, it's, it's how you approach that. Um, you know, you have people that, you know, as I mentioned, have, may have an unconscious bias of saying certain things that are not really appropriate because they've, they've, they've said the same thing for the last 30, 40 years. But how do we ensure that we educate them in a way that say, well, hang on, that's not really appropriate. Um, what you've actually said is pretty you know, demeaningful and it is racist towards who I am in my culture, in my people, my religion or whatnot. So it's actually, I'm a big person on calling it out, but also educating. Because, you know, again, some people are blatantly racist. Yes, you've got to call them out and you've got to put them into place. But it's also understanding that some people that don't mean to do it because they actually didn't think it was an issue. So it's actually changing the hearts and minds of individuals from the grassroots to high performance, from, you know, parents to referees to coaches to administrators to start saying, hang on, we need to just take a moment here. What do we actually mean by being culturally appropriate? How do we actually make sure this space is safe for everyone, regardless of your nationality or background? Um, But we want to make sure we're the leaders for our kids because everything... well, I do and we do, I hope, is for leaving a, a greater legacy for our kids. When you go to the Sports Commission, you're dealing with elite athletes, chair of the Indigenous Committee at the Australian Olympic Committee, do you find that it resonates, the message that you're you're telling elite athletes, this is what you should be saying, this is what you should be doing and this is how you should act? Um so that it is culturally appropriate? Are you finding that message is getting through? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the great thing about, you know, a lot of the athletes I've dealt with and even through the Olympic movement, that athletes are really, you know, actively, you know, buying into this. They want to ensure that they are uh, culturally appropriate because they see Australia as very diverse and multicultural and sport is. But how do we ensure that it's for everyone? And I think the great thing that we've got in Australia, there's a real um, movement within athletes in this country that are really the game changers. They're changing the way people perceive sport and athletes themselves because, you know, if you don't have it leading by our athletes and our superstars, not only from our people that's well-known but from the athletes from the grassroots, um, then it's very, very hard to continue the education because it's not driven by the ones that are really affected by it. It's not entirely easy though, is it? Because uh, there is racism, let's face it, in Australia. Uh, And racism occurs at many different levels. And you mentioned there a moment ago the casual racism uh, where people may not understand or really, um, I guess, believe that they're being racist, whereas it's the blatant racism... Um, which can be incredibly hurtful and is directed towards somebody. So it, it still exists in Australia, doesn't it? Yeah, we, we can't sort of say it doesn't. Um, and it's really important that we all as individuals have, uh, you know, responsibility to call it out. Uh, if you have a mate that's been racist, then, you know, you have to call that out. Have you had that experience yourself? Oh, I've, ha- I've had sort of um, certain mates that have said things jokingly. I said, mate, you, I'm sorry, mate, that's not appropriate. Yeah. And they go, but we know each other. I said, that, no, no, mate. I'm sorry, but understand. And, and it's just educating. 
you know, there's going to be people that are, you know, whatever life, they're, they're always going to be racist to, you know, they're not going to be ignorant to some of the the real issues that are happening on the ground and where people come from um, and they have their own stigma around you know, cultures and people. So, again, it shouldn't be left up to the people of culture to call it out. It has to be every single person's responsibility, regardless black, white or brindle, you call it out because you know it's wrong. Within the Olympic movement, are there enough Indigenous athletes taking part in, in sport? Oh, yeah. I've, there's been 60 known Indigenous Olympians over the, the, the course of the Olympic movement, but, of course, we would like to see more. Uh, and, and that's probably the big shift that's happening where leading into, of course, the nine years into 2032, but you can see the sports, the, you know, the shift around you know, real respect, real acknowledgement and real understanding there has to be a pathway Regardless of where you live in this country, if you want to be a great sports person, then let's make sure you have the opportunity. It shouldn't matter if you're a rural or remote communities. shouldn't be matter if you're black, white or brindle. Whatever background, you, you should be able to give them the same opportunities that everyone else. And I know it's not there, but I think there's a shift that's happening. Uh, and that's something that I'm passionate about to ensure that, let's say, the Olympic movement itself should be not just for the rich, it should be for every single person in this country to aspire, believe and could be part of. With your workshops, what, what do you talk about when you talk to elite athletes, performance, high performance people? What, what do you talk about? Well, first is probably getting their knowledge and understanding. So I'm, I'm a big believer is actually understanding what they know. So we can talk about cultural uh, safe places, you can talk about cultural integrity, authority, you know, cultural education, but everyone's on a different journey. So it's really important to you know, connect with people. And that's one of the, the, the bigger issues I have is you have to connect with your audience and the people you're talking to, not talk at them. You don't lecture them. Yeah, it's really important you bring them along on the journey. So that's the, the shift that I make where it's not me just presenting about, you know, being, you know, a cultural safe space and what it means to have you know, respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait peoples and cultures and histories. It's about what do you know and how do we get you on that journey that it's meaningful but it's also it resonates to you and you can have the lived experience. It's not just ticking a box, oh, look, I've done Reconciliation Week, I've done a, a cultural awareness training. I'm saying, well, what do you do with that? Education. And I think that's the bigger picture where you've got to be able to take it home with you. And it should be not something that's separate in this society. It should be part of who you are as an Australian because, we, you know, you look at the Aboriginal culture is the oldest living culture in the world in the Torres Strait Island culture why are we not celebrating why are we not embrace that everyone deserves that so I'm a, a big believer that you know again it's not something that should be separate it's got to be part of who you are how careful do you think we need to be with our language that's the key isn't it to to make sure that it's not offensive yeah it's, it's very crucial um, because the language is everything because it's our how we interpretate um, culture or how we express ourselves and if it's not done in the right way you can really you know unfortunately ostracize communities people individuals and I think really it's just taking that little bit of extra time and care uh, and it's around consulting with the right people you know taking the time not to just put something out to say we've got something out there to say we're doing this it's actually taking the time to be really respectful and I think it's a simple reality respect we talk about Everyone deserves respect and I think we need to ensure that we always give that respect. You talked there about athletes, talked about the community. 
uh, and part of the community, of course, is the media. Mm. Sometimes the media doesn't really understand the whole cultural aspect when it comes to sport. Do, do you find that? Do you find that there is a bit of misinterpretation? Yeah, and I think there's good and bad. I think that's probably, you know, there's another space where I think like any any sort of outlet of particularly around media, they've got to be well informed um, around, you know, some of the issues where you can talk about racism, you can talk about cultural difference, you can talk about religious difference, but you've got to do the research. You've got to actually come with knowledge and I think that's probably an opportunity that not only through media but across the board that we've got to be a little bit more educated and a bit more aware of the situations or what we're covering. Because if we are, then we come with a real informed questions, but also allow us to not be biased in some ways, because it's easy to be biased because if somebody says they had a racist taunt or been bullied or harassed, then we just go straight to that. We don't sort of appreciate, you know, the history or the story behind that as well. Yeah. I guess some would say that we sometimes go too far. We've got to find a a happy medium, don't we? Yeah, and it's important because I think, yeah, we, we want a good story but it's also we want a factual story that is meaningful but it also doesn't – it actually ensures that there's real support for both sides um, where it's not just ostracising somebody who's called it out. Uh, it's making sure that really there's a little bit of a common sense and there's a lot of bit of a respect that needs to be done because I think respect in what you do and how you talk to people – um, it goes a long way of getting the right information and the right facts when you talk about a story. When you were running and when you retired, did you have any inkling that this would be this would be an area where you'd end up in? Not really. I mean, I've always been passionate about creating change um, in health and well-being and in sport itself. But um, it's probably just come full circle um, and an opportunity to continue to give back um, because I've. I had a fortunate where I've had you know, a different upbringing and I've had uh, the trials and tribulations like anyone else, but um, I've always, you know, created a space that life's about challenges and you've got to challenge yourself and you've also got to make sure that it, it means something. You've got to have purpose. If you don't have purpose, um, it's very hard to, you know, do what you do. And I think I've always um, done something I've loved to do and always challenged it and challenged myself to always think outside the box. You do need people championing your cause, though, don't you? And uh, being supportive, because sometimes it just doesn't happen. Yeah, and I think sometimes you've got to do it yourself, and it's a, it's sometimes hard where you, you want to get the right support, but um, sometimes you know you won't get the support, um, and that's probably a, a tough reality. Um, that you know, particularly in sport and life after sport, and you know what you w- want to do, your dreams and aspirations. Um, but I've always a big believer that you never forget the people that have supported you, uh, but you sometimes have to do the hard yards yourself and you continue to do the hard yards to create change. Do you find that because you were a champion sportsman, sports person, it, it is easier to, to gain acceptance? Um, and I guess is it sometimes hard for you to realise why others can't have the same elevation that you've had or same acceptance? Oh, not really, because I think it's what you make of life. You, you, what you put in life is what you get out. And, of course, you know, we all have different paths and uh, different opportunities. But, um, you know, again, I can't talk on what, you know, how other people have experienced it, but I can only talk about I've struggled. I've gone through the trials and tribulations of, you know, sport, um, post-sport, um, career development, um, you know, all the sort of, you know, emotions that you go through. Um, but I've always had one thing in in front of my mind is, you know, do what you love 
and, and always put that passion and drive into it. And, 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 and if you want to do something, do it yourself. Don't wait for anyone else. How was it after you retired? Did you fall into a little bit of a slump? Yeah, there's always there because I think like anything I had aspirations of doing many things and um, I wanted to just focus on what my heart says and what my mind is sort of thinking and I decided I want to do a lot more in community around health and wellbeing and to inspire our next generation to believe there's something out there for them. So, you know, again, it, it wasn't a well-paid job. It was just something that I loved to do and, you know, again, we talk about money's not everything but you've got to make sure that you're doing something that you love um, and and if you do something that you love, then it's not really work, is it? Tell us about some of the experiences you've had because you worked at Foreign Affairs post-Olympics, post your, your running career. You've also been involved in, in encouraging healthy lifestyle in, in Indigenous communities and now you're on a couple of boards. You're a leader in terms of cultural and racial change. How does that experience shape you as a, as a person, do you think? Well, it's probably important I have that lived experience. Um, so my lived experience of um, you know, going through the trials and tribulations of sport, going through different career opportunities and you know, doing certain things that may not have been something I wanted to do, but I knew there was a, you know, something that ended the road, so to speak. So I've always been a very posit- positive person, very optimistic, regardless of what, what life has thrown at me. Um, and I've always persevered. So I think the lived experience as an athlete, of course, and of course, as you know, Tim, living on a boat with Sundays, you know, it's always a big trial and error up there as well. Um, I was able to always maintain that what you put in, put in life is what you get out um, and you can only control the controllables. So I was able to always, you know, regardless if I got injured or regardless of if I moved on to a different career or I wasn't being as successful, um, I was always maintain that sense of purpose, um, which sometimes is very difficult because um, you may not have always that sense of clear purpose. But I had a clear sense of purpose, do what I love, and always give it 120%. Good on you, Patrick. Uh, as I said, welcome to Sport Integrity Australia. I'm sure you're going to make a huge difference. Thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, Tim. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Joining us now on Onside is former Australian Diamonds captain and world champion Caitlin Bassett. There isn't much that Caitlin hasn't done in netball. She was the beating heart of the Australian team and has 100 caps, is a two-time world champion and is a Commonwealth Games gold medalist. Caitlin retired last year and has taken up a role at Sport Integrity Australia as an athlete educator. She's determined to ensure the next generation of Australian athletes are educated on the threats to integrity in sport. Caitlin joins us now. Well, Caitlin, uh, firstly, welcome to Sport Integrity Australia. Uh, What was the reason behind becoming an athlete educator? (laughs) I was at a little bit of a loose end after I finished playing netball, I think, um, and was looking for jobs online and one of them was for the educator role. And I thought, I've sat through so many of these sessions myself as an athlete. I reckon I could do this job pretty good. And it's been heaps of fun so far. As an athlete, did you tune out at times? (laughs) So it was challenging at times. I remember when I was young being in a room with heaps of people and and having 
it delivered to us. Um, when I got a little bit older, we actually did it online and we had to um, complete the units um, as part of uh, to get paid basically. Mm. So it was kind of a very big incentive there to get through some of the work. But I think what kind of struck me and what I said when I presented the other day was I was only athlete for 18 years and the information that I was getting at the start of my career and the information I was getting at the end was vastly different. So I was always learning every time we came together to do an education session, whether it be around, uh, you know, <clears throat> sorry, whether it be around drugs in sport, whether it be around uh, integrity issues, around, you know, wagering and betting in sport and things like that. It was always something new and something learning because it, sport was evolving at such a rapid yeah. rate. Did you find that uh, when you go around the shelves these days, do you have a look at batch testing of supplements and, and work out which supplements you can, even though you're not involved in sport at elite level, do you still look at those things? It's interesting because I'm still working in sport. I'm working within cricket and um, I have access to using some of the supplements at training. Mm. And number one, I don't use supplements anymore because I don't do any exercise. Um, <laughs> so I don't need to. But yeah, I just think, oh, wow, I can actually take yeah. whatever I want now if that's what I wanted to do and didn't have to think about it. Um, while I was playing, I um, I did for a little bit um, – get involved with uh, starting my own supplement. And yeah. that was one of the things that was really important, obviously, was the batch testing. And um, as an athlete, it's just always been ingrained in me. I guess what I put in my body is my responsibility. And so I wanted to make sure that anything with my name attached to it was going to be um, something that athletes were going to be able to take safely and not have to worry because, unfortunately, it is still um, a drama these days. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you get given, you know, something really innocuous. You go to a, a hotel, you're staying away, and there's a little protein ball on your bed when you get there is like, a welcome thing or you know you go to the shops and there's all these bits and pieces and information and it really is scary um you know what to take and what not to take is that one of the messages when you go out to, to speak to athletes now that's what you're going to be saying to them they'd be wary of everything that you put into your body yeah it is and i think you know we see so much in the media these days about athletes coming out so i didn't know and you know uh, i swear i didn't do anything wrong and, and you mm. know the responsibility is never on them but it actually is and we don't want to scare athletes we don't want to terrify them but um you know they are very lucky some of mm. them are you know, some of the athletes we talk to are earning very big contracts. So it's a lot, mm. you know, financial for them, but it's your reputation at the end of the day. And that's something that you can never reverse if um, someone's accused you of cheating or doping and things like that. Um, it, it's, it's kind of irreversible that mark will be on your career for the rest of your life. We know the internet these days never forgets. Yeah. So it's really important, I think, about being proactive um, and getting ahead of these things and, and um, stopping athletes making silly mistakes because often they put so much thought and effort into their training, their preparation, their diet, their exercise, and it's just that one tiny little slip-up that can let them, you know, um, come undone. It's not just an anti-doping message that you're delivering either. It's, it's all about the integrity of a sport. You mentioned a moment ago about wagering and, and whatnot. Just to, amongst sports women, do you think wagering is an issue? Do you think that because we hear about it a lot in male sports where uh, people are betting on everything... Is it the same with women's sports? Well, it is becoming that way, yes, because, I mean, I'm currently working in cricket and when I go to um, work or to watch the girls play, I have to hand in my phone mm. um, to start the game and, and and that's just normal for them. Any iPhones or watches, anything that basically can get the internet gets handed in, gets bit put in yep. a big lockbox because people are understanding now that female sport is becoming more popular and they can wager it. And in a sport like cricket, you can put bets on everything about, you know, balls, wide 
cards. The, you know, there's so many tiny little things in the game that you could potentially make into a wager. And so I think as female sport gets bigger and grows, um, unfortunately, people who are on the outside and potentially uh, want to do harm within sport kind of see an opportunity. So, yeah, it is important that in female sport, I guess that we're, we're being as diligent as we are in the men's sport because it is starting to creep in there. And, you know, my sport, netball, traditionally um, was nothing that I ex ever experienced when I was playing, but social media and, and, and embedding these days is just, you know, gone through the roof. Just on social media, that's another aspect of, I guess, being part of a, a sports person is these days where you do cop it on social media. We've seen that recently with the Australian team. How do you cope with it and what, what would be your message to, to young people in particular impacted by it, apart from simply getting off social media? Yeah, and that's a really hard thing, I think, as athletes these days, um, they're encouraged to build their brand and their profile and um, showcase what their sport is through social media. And, and it's really cool for fans to engage that way. Yeah. And it is it was always encouraged, you know, like this is a great way to involve fans in your journey. And so by opening up your life and sharing your life to them is a great way to, um, yeah, I guess bring them along on the ride with you. But you are also opening yourself up to the negative side and that is obviously abuse um, um, and some of the unkind comments that come along with it. Um, so it's it's finding that balance. You can't say to a young athlete these days, don't look at social media because, um, you know, for some of the young athletes, it's just so ingrained in their life. They've grown up going to school, using the internet, using social media to connect with their friends. Um, and so we, we want them to be mindful um, about using it and, and getting the benefits of it, but then also understanding that... Um, there's tools and that your sporting organisation should have ways to help you if you are going through some struggles online. Uh, did you ever have any issues with with social media abuse? 100%. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, I did. Um, I think I was one of those people that, um, yeah, definitely opened myself up and, and was quite vulnerable at times to online. Um, and it was a struggle for me. Um, and, and it transferred to in-person, you know. I would play a game, maybe not play well, um, would get attacked online or someone would question, you know, why I should be the Australian captain. And then I would have to go after a game and sign autographs and, you know, being surrounded mm. by fans, my head I'm thinking, or oh, some of these people, mm. the ones that are writing these negative comments about me and, and now they're asking for a photo mm -hmm. and they want me to sign and be friendly and open. So it can be really hard. I think, um, you know, that online persona and, and who you are offline and, and really trying to balance the two. But yeah, definitely for me, um, I had to pretty quickly, um, upskill and, and, and do a lot of work in the way of, um, dealing with what was coming at me at social media. Yes. It's not just disgruntled fans who are upset with the result or how you're playing, but gamblers um, who've bet on the game and something might go awry in the game and they take it out on the players. I know. And imagine that you finished a game, you're devastated because maybe you haven't played particularly well or you're gutted because it's been a major competition. Um, for example, after, you know, finishing Com Games and winning silver, um, which wasn't what we wanted in the Gold Coast in 2018, jumping online for then people to be like, you've lost me money, I had bets on this game, I can't believe, you, how, why did you miss that goal, like you've cost me all this and getting that abuse, like that is full on and um, you really have to distance yourself from those comments, like... Mm. I didn't tell you to put a bet on that. I didn't tell you to put, you know, to gamble that amount of money. Um, and as an athlete, I guess you can't take that pressure into playing because imagine if every 
goal that I went to score, I thought about that. Oh, I wonder if I'm losing some of my money here or is someone going to abuse me if I miss this goal? Like that is really distracting. So I think it's about, um, you know, if you are reading those type of things or that type of stuff is coming your way online, actively working with someone to be able to put that aside so it's not uh, affecting your performances. You get the impression at times that, that sports are at times struggling with how to, how to keep up with everything because there is so much going on at the moment. And in the background, you've got the safeguarding aspect as well, but athletes need to be protected. It's up to the sporting organisation to do that. So there's a lot of pressure on sporting organisations these days, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And, and I think it's fair because um, if the sporting organisation is using your image and using you to promote their brand, they also need to be responsible for helping keep you safe. And I get really frustrated when sporting organisations go, oh, we're not going to moderate posts. So we're going to leave comments on and they kind of fuel the fire in, in, in regards to, to letting trolls do their work. And I remember sitting down before World Cup in 2019 with the media department at Netball Australia and saying, some of the things that you guys do, it, it can affect the way that we are treated online. So when we're posting before a game or, you know, don't ask the question who should be the starting seven because that's inviting people mm. to get on their high horse and, and start slagging off players. Like it's about really taking control as, as an organisation and setting a standard that, well, this is what we expect online and if, you, um, if you're if you going to misbehave, we're going to block you or, you know, we're going to turn off comments because um, people, you know, these days they see that freedom of speech and, and it's it's my right. I'm allowed to comment and say whatever I want um, and, and so, you know, that's I think when sporting organisations kind of need to step up and go, well, actually that's not the type of behaviour that we expect. It sounds like you're going to be able to bring a, a lot of life skills to this role at Sport Integrity Australia, going out talking to athletes because you have real life experience, don't you? Yeah, it, I, I do. And it's quite funny as an athlete when you're um, you know, training and you're in the thick of it, you actually think, well, I'm not good at anything. Like I can throw and catch a netball and that's great, but the, how's that going to help me in the real world? And it's really nice um, to, to be working this education role and understand that the things that I learned during sport is now so relevant in helping me, helping others. Um, and I think that's what really drew me to um, to the education position, not just because I, I love being involved in sports still and um, I love presenting and um, broadcast and media is a passion of mine, but it's also about helping share the experiences that I've had and helping others and, and helping them go through potentially an easier time, things that I struggle with. So, uh, yeah, there are a few life lessons that I've had over the years and um, I love giving back, but also I love learning off other athletes. And um, at the moment they are in the thick of it. They're, you know, social media, online abuse is rampant, gambling is rampant, all these, you know, supplements which are getting shoved down, you know, players' throats by marketing and media companies mm. and things like that. Like it is a really scary space as an athlete and um, there is a lot of pressure on them to be perfect, not just on the field or pitch or whatever discipline they're performing in, but to be offered as well. It's a minefield, isn't it? It yeah. is, but an exciting one. And I guess that's what makes um, being an elite athlete so exciting. You get the opportunities to do things that other people will not, um, the good and the bad. And um, yeah, you just got to embrace the opportunities that come your way and, and, and learn as you go. Have you thought about being a coach or is that, that's, that, that's not in your, your DNA? I definitely don't have the patience to be a coach. Okay. Um, I'm working in the player wellbeing space at the moment, which I enjoy because um, 
I really like that sports are understanding that well-being um, and treating a person as a whole and not just an athlete is really important to performance um, and important to, uh, you know, when a player does decide to leave the sport or retire, um, that we're, we're going to help them and guide them in the next area of their life because, you know, like I see when I walk around here, there's plenty of ex-athletes who come back to sport and, mm. and, and come back to present and come back to help others. And I think that's what we really want. We want elite athletes to leave the sporting environment feeling supported that they can come back into it and share their experiences to help others. You mentioned the R word there, retirement. You've been retired for about six months now. How hard is it for an athlete uh, to suddenly go from, from playing at elite level as, as you were and as captain of the team to suddenly not have that day-to-day experience anymore? Is that an issue that needs to be uh, explored a little, little bit more? Yeah, um, I think the the media likes to pump up a fairy tale ending, and so for a lot of athletes, they think, "Oh, I'm going to finish my career on a high. I'm going to win a, a medal, a championship. I'm I'm going to finish exactly the way I want to, and then I'm just going to smooth sail into the next area of my life." But um, unfortunately, in sport, uh, I've I've found out through talking to lots of other athletes now, and that it's it's not that way. And there's so many athletes, um, that finish because of injury, because of deselection, because of burnout. Um, you know, they're injured, they're, they've lost passion for the sport or they've no longer been selected and they felt like they've been let down and they walk away, um, very unprepared, um, both physically and mentally for what the next stage of their life is. And so the last six months for me have been ridiculously challenging. Um, I definitely wasn't prepared for retirement, even though I thought I was, you know, Mm. I I studied while I was playing netball. I I had all these bits and pieces going on outside of sport that I thought had prepared me really well. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, it's literally like you, you've been banned from going into the office. You don't mm. have uh, people to train with. You don't have that support that you're used to accessing every day. Um, even basic things for me like physio, um, I finished um, with, you know, two two knee surgeries. And so even just being able to rehab so I could walk properly and get in and out of my car, that was stuff that I didn't even have access to. So um, it can be quite confronting. Yeah, so as you look back on your, your career, have you got a – a memory that comes to mind immediately if you thought, well, gee, that was good. Um, because when you're in the thick of things, you really don't have time to reflect, do you? No, you don't have time to reflect because what happens is you set a goal and then you achieve that goal and then the next day you jump to the next goal and the next goal and the next goal. Even if you're hitting a PB in the weights room on the bench press, you know, you're chucking on another 2.5 kilos straight away. You're always pushing for the next thing and I think that can be really um you don't realise that as an athlete that you're never actually acknowledging the great things that do come your way. And when I look back on my career and um, I reflect a lot through looking through old photos and talking to some of my old teammates and it's not, um, you know, the big tournaments, it's it's not the Com Games and the World Cups because reflecting on them, I actually realised how exhausting and um, mm. and challenging they were for me as an athlete. Um I like uh, playing one game a week. I don't like jamming everything into a week and playing, you know, uh, seven games in 10 days in an elite tournament um, is exhausting. And so looking back, I think the things I miss most and the things that make me smile most are uh, the the tours that we went overseas. Um, You know, we went to Jamaica a couple of times, which is always interesting. Heading to the UK, um, you know, when it's 40 degrees in Perth, jumping on a plane, heading to the UK where it's negative five degrees to go play a tournament and then coming back to the heat again, those type of things, um, you know, going travelling after a tournament over in, in Europe or the UK, I think were, were things that I 
remember really fondly. But then, you know, people always say it's the friendships and it's the mucking around at training and it's the laugh that you have. And, and they're always things I think um, for me now, I'm really lucky I had those experiences. And just as a final question, I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Do you, do you successfully get the exit row in planes still? Or, <laughs> yeah, or... I'm waiting for the bump up to business class, but that never happens. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I have to pay for that now as well. So that's yeah. one of the horrible things about no longer being an athlete. You've got to pay for all your flights everywhere. Yeah. How tall are you, by the way? Six foot four. Six foot four. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I imagine it's a bit of a crumple in 30, mm. 34D or something mm. like that. Yes. Yeah. So maybe I left the sport too early. I think the girls are getting business class flights now when they head overseas, but we never did when we were playing in uh, tournaments over there. So, yeah. All the best in your new role. I'm sure it's going to go well, Caitlin, as an athlete educator for Sport Integrity Australia. Thank you. Thank you. And now for our segment, From Left Field, where we answer a question from the public. Hi, I'm Hayley. I'm an education presenter with Sport Integrity Australia. Today's Left Field question is, are antidepressants banned? As a category, antidepressants aren't banned in sport, and there are a number of common medications that are permitted for use in athletes. However, as we know, substances can change over time, so athletes need to be careful to make sure that they're checking their substances regularly on Global Drone. At the end of the day, your mental health is most important. So be sure to check in with your doctor if you feel like you need mental health support. Thanks for joining us on Onside. I'm Tim Gable. See you soon with another episode of Onside. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au or check out our Clean Sport app.